Well, today we are definitely, almost certainly, most likely, probably going to finish the book of Exodus. Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes, so let's believe that's going to happen today. Much of chapters 35 through 40 of the book of Exodus are going to detail the construction of the tabernacle, one of the most significant and sacred building projects of all time. Now, while there will be a few slight variations, like the order of the items generally being reversed, for all intents and purposes, it's going to be a repetition of instructions that appear earlier in the book of Exodus. There are several theories as to why the Lord would take valuable real estate in the Bible and devote it to repetition. Later in this message, I'm going to share what I personally believe is the most important implication and reason for this repetition, but here's what I know. God has his reasons, and his reasons are good. We're not going to read through all of these chapters. I'm going to highlight a few specific things in them, make a few points, and then ask that you just be open to allow the Holy Spirit to especially draw your attention to any part that he especially wants you to hear today. If you feel the Spirit tugging on your heart in a certain section, make a note about it. Take some time in your devotional life tomorrow because that means there's something the Lord wants to talk with you about. And by the way, that's something we should always do. In every Bible study, every message, we should always be open to the Lord highlighting a specific part and bringing it to our attention because the Holy Spirit knows exactly what we need. So let's start at the beginning of chapter 35. Before Israel begins this sacred building project, I really want us to notice what the Lord has Moses remind the children of Israel of right here at the beginning of chapter 35. It says, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Would you underline that? A Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. If you don't rest, you're going to rest forever. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Fire would be used for cooking and metalwork and things like that. So that reference is just another way of saying don't do any work on the Sabbath. The Lord has Moses remind Israel to observe the Sabbath, to rest, and more importantly, rest in him. Why? Because the Lord knows that any time he gives us a ministry assignment, a ministry project, it is easy for us to burn ourselves out and ignore our need for rest because we tell ourselves, listen, it's for the Lord. I don't need to rest. I don't want to rest. How could I rest when it's for the Lord? And so the Lord says, before you start this sacred project, Moses, I want to remind you, and I want you to remind the people to observe the Sabbath. Stay in the practice of setting aside time to rest and to rest in me. 
But Lord, there's so much more I could get accomplished for you if I would just keep working through the Sabbath. And the Lord says, listen, if it's really for me, then you'll do it the way that I want it done. And the way I want it done involves you taking time to rest and to rest in me. But Lord, I could be so much more productive. I could be so much more fruitful if I just kept working and stayed busy. Remember what Jesus said. We've talked about it before. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Some of us claim to believe those words of Jesus from John 15, but even a quick glance at our lives reveals we don't practice it. We don't ever say, oh man, I need to stop for a minute and make some time to rest and rest in the Lord. Because if I don't, my fruitfulness, my productivity is going to plummet. I got to rest. It's what we talked about in our previous study. We must be filled up before we can be poured out. Remember, too, that the Sabbath was one of the major signs of the covenant God had made with Israel. It was one of the things that marked them as a distinct people, even as much as the rite of circumcision. While the nations around them would work nonstop, Israel would work one day less every seven days. And yet, because the Lord would bless their labor, Israel would be more fruitful than the nations around her who never rested. And all this was to be a witness to those surrounding nations that the God of Israel is a God who blesses those who follow and place their trust in him. Would you make a note of this? Sabbath rest was an act of worship which the Lord did not want Israel to neglect. Sabbath rest was an act of worship which the Lord did not want Israel to neglect. We're under the new covenant. We're not under the law. And so there are different views about whether we are commanded or not to observe a Sabbath as new covenant Christians. Personally, I believe we are. I believe that the New Testament makes it clear that the day doesn't matter. I believe we're free from all the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath. But I don't believe that the new covenant delivered us from our need for rest. I don't believe that the new covenant delivered us from our need to practice John 15 well and make time to abide in Jesus. And I don't believe that we can get more done as new covenant Christians in seven days of work than we can by working for six and accepting the Lord's invitation to rest in him for a Sabbath. That's my conviction regarding the Sabbath. But you need to study, pray, research, and come to your own conclusions. And if you come to a different conclusion from me, that's fine. Absolutely. Well, let's keep reading in verse 4 of chapter 35. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, would you underline that? A willing heart. 
Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And then look at the response of people. Flip with me to chapter 36, verse 3. Chapter 36, verse 3, we read, And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. What an incredible scene. This might be the only time in history that a ministry leader has ever said, please stop giving. (laughs) I think that Israel was likely feeling extra grateful because the Lord had just forgiven them for the golden calf incident and had returned to dwell among them and lead them, meeting with Moses as we read about in our previous study. And pastors love to talk about this passage as it relates to giving, but I don't want to go too far with it from a fundraising perspective, because when I thought about it, I realized, you know, I think it's an important detail that the Israelites had plundered the wealth of the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt, hadn't really had anywhere to spend it while they had been going through the wilderness. And also there were probably around half a million households in the nation of Israel giving to this project. And I feel like when you have half a million households contributing to a church building project, I feel like you're going to take in quite a bit of cash. I feel like it's going to go well. So I don't want to go too far with that as a model, but there are two things that I want to draw our attention to that I think still apply to us today. Firstly, like the Israelites, we should always give from a place of gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. He's forgiven us. He's saved us. He's provided for us. He dwells within us. We have so much to be thankful for. Secondly, I think we can take this as we look through to the New Testament as well. If you can only give grudgingly, if you can only give to the Lord reluctantly or bitterly, then listen, don't give. You're better off not giving because from God's perspective, it's meaningless. The word declares that God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Well, that's great news, Jeff. Uh, I mean, I've never been a cheerful giver, so I guess I'll just stop giving then to, to get in line with the word. Hey, listen, go back to the first point. Give from a place of gratitude, from a place of awareness of what the Lord has done for you, and you'll become a cheerful giver. That's the right way to do it. Church, listen, we're not doing God any favors when we give. He lacks nothing. He's doing us a favor by allowing us the privilege of being involved in the work of his kingdom on the earth, just as he allowed the Israelites the privilege of being involved in the construction of the tabernacle. 
I'm not saying that we should never give sacrificially. I'm not saying that we should never give when the circumstances are challenging. I'm saying that even in those difficult situations, we should be giving with a heart of gratitude toward the Lord. The Lord didn't tell Moses to tax the people to fund the temple. Then and today, the Lord wants everyone who gives tithes or offerings to do so willingly, never out of compulsion and always from a place of gratitude. Make a note of this. The Lord isn't blessed. This is huge. The Lord isn't blessed by what we give. He's blessed by the heart that we give it with. The Lord isn't blessed by what we give. He's blessed by the heart we give it with. Listen, there are people out there giving huge sums of money to the church. Some of them are only doing it for the tax write-off because it has to go somewhere at the end of the year. But God was blessed when the widow put two mites, two cents into the offering because she gave from a place of radical trust because she had so little. And that's what blessed the Lord. Listen, the Lord isn't blessed by what we give. He's blessed by the heart we give it with. And he wants us to give with a joyful, grateful heart. It's the heart that blesses the Lord. Take a look now in chapter 35 at verse 30. I know we're jumping around a bit, but it's just what we got to do to highlight the right stuff here. Chapter 35, verse 30, it says, And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he, the Lord, has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Aholiab from every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. This is how the Lord calls men and women to specific callings, specific tasks, specific ministries, specific vocations. He gives them the spiritual abilities needed for the job. He gives them the raw, practical gifts and abilities for the job. And then he gives them a passion for the calling. He stirs their heart toward that thing. If you're ever weighing a major life decision in terms of your calling, these are some of the things you need to ask yourself. Has the Lord given me the spiritual abilities to do this? Has the Lord given me the practical abilities to do this? Has the Lord given me a passion for this? Has he stirred my heart for this? Would you write this down? God's calling is revealed when anointing, ability, and availability come together. Let me say that again. God's calling is revealed when anointing, ability, and availability 
come together. Man, in the church, people are blessed whenever those three things come together. I was a worship pastor for for years, and one of the running jokes among worship pastors is how often it seems that the people who had the ability never had the availability, and the people who had the availability never had the ability. If your church had a few hundred people in it, there's probably some great musicians and singers in your church, but a lot of the time it seemed like they were either unavailable or uninterested in serving, while a lot of the time the people who were interested in playing or singing, while they might be available, did not have the ability. But man, when it does all come together, the anointing, the ability, the availability, people are blessed and effective ministry takes place. And I love the people, by the way, who serve in our worship team who have both the availability and the ability and the anointing to bless us as the church. Chapter 38 tells us that the construction of the tabernacle included over a ton of gold, four tons of silver, and around two and a half tons of bronze. When I ran the numbers on Thursday this week, that came out to a present-day cost of over $62 million American for just the raw materials, those three metals. Now think back when we studied the design of the tabernacle to just how small the interior of the tent part of the tabernacle was, the holy place and the holy of holies. It was only 675 square feet. That's all. That means we can ballpark the cost per square foot of the interior of the tabernacle tent at over $92,000 American per square foot in present-day terms. That's expensive even for Vancouver. But if you looked from the outside, it would have looked like a relatively ordinary and plain Bedouin tent. Kind of like us, right? We may not look all that impressive on the outside, but on the inside... Well, the very presence of God dwells on the inside of us. His beauty and glory and majesty live inside of us. Aren't you glad that the presence of the Lord chooses to dwell in humble vessels like you and I? I know I am. It's a truth that has enormous implications, but we'll save that for another study on another day. Flip ahead to chapter 39 and verse 42. We read, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it. Underline this, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses, would you write this down? Bless them. Moses, bless them. And then in chapter 40, we read this in the back half of verse 33. Chapter 40, back half of verse 33. So Moses, with regard to the tabernacle, so Moses finished the work. When you run the numbers, the tabernacle took around six months to construct. Altogether, Israel would be camped at Mount Sinai for around eight and a half months 
and the completed tabernacle would be raised around a year after they first left Egypt in the Exodus. Take a look with me then in chapter 40, verse 34. Then, would you underline that word, then? Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. And then I just love these last words. Throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. Exodus repeats the specifics of the tabernacle because God clearly wants us to see that his people followed his instructions to the letter. God is not really all that into improvisation when he's given a specific instruction. He's not really into us saying, I know you said to do it this way, Lord, but I'm going to call an audible and take this thing in another direction. God's not into that. And the people recognized that if they wanted God's presence to dwell among them, if they wanted his presence to go with them, then things had to be done God's way. Why? Because he's God. He's God. Seven times in chapter 40, we're told that Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him. Yes, We live in the age of grace. Praise God for that. And yes, our salvation is secure, even if we wander, stray from the path, or backslide. But there is a truth found in the repetition of Exodus that I believe still applies to us today. And it's this. It's the last fill-in on your outline. Doing things God's way prepares the way for his presence blessings, and guidance. Let me say it again. This is the truth. Doing things God's way prepares the way for his presence, blessings, and guidance. I believe that's the biggest lesson behind the repetition in these chapters in Exodus. The tabernacle had to be constructed to God's exact specifications before his presence would fill it. Isaiah prophesied about the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And how did Isaiah describe John's ministry? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a highway for our God. The ministry of John the Baptist was to call people to repent so that they would be ready for the arrival of Messiah, Jesus. Jesus was coming to bless and save people, but they needed to get ready. Praise God, the Lord doesn't withhold salvation from us if we're not perfect, which we're not. Praise God, there's grace. But listen to me, church. You can go through your whole life being a saved Christian and yet miss out on so many of God's blessings if you don't understand this truth. God is our creator. 
He is our designer. And God has designed life, and especially the most important parts of life, to work a certain way, his way. And when we reject his design and his ways, we forfeit the blessings that God has built into his design. But when we do things in accordance with God's design, we prepare the way for his presence, blessings, and leadership in those areas of our lives. This truth applies to marriage, sex, money, work, parenting, and on and on and on we could go. Think about the important areas of your life. Do you want God to move, be present, bless, and guide you in those areas? Then do things his way. Do things according to his design. Make straight a highway for the Lord. I'm going to take our final moments in Exodus to talk a little bit more about this idea that we've mentioned many times during our studies, that Moses is a type of Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. You know, the parallels are extraordinary. And if there's any doubt on your part that it's intentional and supernatural, I want to do my best to put those doubts to rest. I am indulging openly in some massive Bible nerd stuff right here, which I love, and hopefully you will too. So let's take a look at Moses and Jesus in typology. In Deuteronomy 18.18, the Lord actually tells Moses that he is a type of Jesus. Now, as best we can tell, Moses had obviously no idea who Jesus was in terms of being Messiah. He didn't have a concept of a coming Messiah or anything like that. But the Lord is speaking of Jesus. We know this when he tells Moses, I will raise up for them, for the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Over the years... This prophecy created an expectation among the rabbis and the scribes that Moses was going to return in some form or type. And we actually see this expectation still present in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, where we read this. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the religious leaders in Jerusalem got word that this guy was attracting huge crowds. He's preaching a message of repentance and then baptizing people in the Jordan River. So they send a group of men on their behalf from Jerusalem on a scouting trip to check things out. We read, he, that's John, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. John says, I'm not Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? You see, they also had an expectation that Elijah would return one day in some form, which is a story for another day. He, that's John, said, I am not. And then they say, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. You see, when they say, are you the prophet? They're asking John if he is the prophet 
like Moses that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Moses was a type of Jesus to such a degree that the Lord himself described Jesus to Moses as a prophet like you. Now let's have some fun. Let's get into a list of other similarities. There are even more that I could mention, but I'm going to leave some out for the sake of time. And we've still got dozens here. Moses and Jesus, here's the obvious one. They were both Jewish. They were both Israelites. Both were born when Israel was in bondage to a Gentile power. Moses, when Egypt had the Israelites as slaves, and Jesus, when Rome had subjected the citizens of Israel. When they were babies, Satan inspired the ruling political leader to kill all Hebrew baby boys under the age of two. Pharaoh did that when Moses was a baby boy, and Herod did that when Jesus was a baby boy. Because it was the only option, Moses' mother placed him in a straw-thatched basket and then sent him down the river where he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Because it was the only option, Jesus' mother placed the baby Jesus in a straw-filled stable. Both had to flee to another country because men sought to kill them. Moses had to flee to Midian when he was 40. Jesus and his family had to flee to Egypt because of Herod's scheme to kill the baby boys. And both returned when those who sought to kill them were dead. Moses was adopted by a non-biological mother. Jesus was adopted by a non-biological father, Joseph. Both spent childhood years in Egypt, as we've mentioned. Both displayed an early awareness of their calling and mission. We're told that Moses, when he got involved for the first time with defending Israel, assumed that they would just accept him as their deliverer. We see Jesus in the temple as a child, understanding that he needs to be in his father's house. House. Both are described in Scripture as being chosen or elected by God. Both gave up their royalty to take on the role of redeemer for an enslaved people. The Israelites enslaved literally to Egypt. Jesus taking on the role of redeemer for an enslaved world. Both were unashamed to be joined to their brethren despite their low station. Moses was unashamed to be part of the Hebrews even when they were slaves, and Jesus was unashamed to become a human being even though we were in bondage to sin. Both were rejected by their brethren. Both had a heart of sympathy toward Israel. Both entered ministry in the latter years of their life. Moses was 80. Jesus was 30. Moses spent 40 years living in the wilderness of Midian before beginning his ministry. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his ministry. Here's an interesting one. Moses ministered to women at a well by helping them get water. Jesus ministered to a woman at a well by offering her living water. While in the wilderness, Moses became a shepherd Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Moses took a Gentile bride, Zipporah, who was grafted into the family of God. Jesus took a Gentile bride, the church, who has been grafted into the family of God. 
Israel was oppressed for 400 years before Moses was sent to deliver them. Israel endured 400 years of silence before Jesus arrived between Malachi and Matthew. And Jesus spoke to his people through the incarnation. Jesus was, sorry, Moses was the first miracle worker in the Old Testament. And God gave them the ability to do miracles to authenticate his claim to be sent by God. Jesus did countless miracles to authenticate his claim to be sent by God. Both were given a clear mission by God to be a deliverer. Moses was inconceivably both royalty and slave at the same time, being a prince of Egypt and also a Hebrew. Jesus is inconceivably both God and man at the same time, being the transcendent son of God, but also a descendant son of man. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses judged Egypt with a powerful rod. Jesus will judge the nations with a rod of iron at his second coming. Moses warned Egypt of the catastrophic consequences of rejecting him as God's messenger. Jesus warned of the catastrophic consequences of rejecting him and his message in Luke 13. Moses initiated the first Passover involving the death of the Passover lamb. Jesus initiated the final Passover, serving as the Passover lamb himself in our place. Moses led Israel through the Reed Sea by parting the waters. Jesus led his disciples across the Sea of Galilee by calming the storm. Paul tells us that Israel was baptized into Moses, Moses being a picture of the law. But we have been baptized into Jesus, the God of grace. Moses led Israel out of physical slavery. Jesus led humanity out of spiritual slavery. Both were in danger of being killed by their brethren while ministering to them. Both had their authority challenged by the people they were sent to save. Both were envied by their people. People complained about both of them. Both experienced deep sorrows. Both fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses delivered the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Moses delivered the Ten Commandments. Jesus clarified them in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses introduced the Old Covenant. Jesus introduced the New Covenant. When the Israelites were dying of thirst in the wilderness, Moses struck a rock and the rock spewed water to quench their thirst. Jesus, our rock, was struck for our sin and from him flowed living water for our salvation. Moses had 70 elders who received instruction from him. Jesus had a group of 70 men who followed him and were taught by him. Moses washed the feet of his brother Aaron and his sons. Jesus washed the feet of his spiritual brothers and some of his half-brothers, the disciples. Moses and Jesus both led people in the praise of God. Both displayed incredible mercy and grace, praying for, interceding for, and ministering to even those who had deeply wronged them. Psalm 99.6 tells us that in God's eyes, Moses was also a priest. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. Moses was a temporary mediator for Israel. Jesus is the eternal mediator for all mankind. 
Both prayed for Israel to be forgiven. Moses went up Mount Sinai, was changed, and came down with a glowing face. Jesus went up Mount Hermon and was transfigured, shining brighter than the sun. Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle. Jesus was the tabernacle in the flesh. Exodus 40.33 declares Moses finished the work when Moses finished building the tabernacle. John 17.4 tells us that Jesus finished the work his father gave him to do, and as he took his final breath on the cross, he declared, it is finished. Here's another interesting one. Both experienced the Lord's anger on account of those they were sent to redeem. Jesus, of course, taking God's wrath in our place on the cross. But listen to these verses about Moses. Psalm 106.32, They angered him, the Lord, also at the waters of Meribah, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. Deuteronomy 3.26 says, But the Lord was angry with me on your account. Moses erected a pole with a snake, the symbol of sin upon it, and everyone who looked upon it was saved from their deadly snake bites. Jesus was lifted up on a cross and became sin in our place, and everyone who looks to him will be saved from the curse of sin and death. Moses prayed, and the Lord miraculously provided for Israel in the wilderness the food that they needed, manna. Jesus prayed, and the Lord miraculously provided food for the crowd in the form of loaves and fishes. Both Moses and Jesus are recorded speaking accurate prophecies. Both were prayerful in every crisis. Both were incredibly humble. Both are described as being wise. Both had special, unique knowledge of God. Both demonstrated righteous anger, Moses smashing the first iteration of the Ten Commandments, Jesus clearing the temple. Deuteronomy 33.5 describes Moses as a king, Jesus is the king of kings. Moses served as a judge, Jesus will judge every person. Both called God's people to obey God's word. Moses sent 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Jesus chose 12 disciples to be sent out across the world with the gospel. Moses is seen giving rewards to God's people, most notably in the form of territory. Jesus will give eternal rewards to his people. Both appointed another to follow them. Moses appointed Joshua and Jesus appointed the Holy Spirit. Before God's people could enter the promised land, Moses had to die. Before mankind could enter heaven, Jesus had to die. After Moses died, he was seen again on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Jesus rose from the grave and was seen by hundreds after his death. Joshua 1.14 describes the promised land as an inheritance given to Israel by Moses. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that Jesus has given us the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And finally, I suggest that both Moses and Jesus are scheduled for future earthly appearances. Jesus is the obvious one at the second coming, but I believe that Moses will be one of the two witnesses recorded in Revelation chapter 11. Incredible 
the number of parallels. Absolutely incredible and should leave you with no doubt that Moses is indeed a type of Jesus. There are a couple of other parallels I want to quickly make you aware of before we wrap up so that you can dig into them further in your own study, should you choose. There's a whole school of thought known as the cosmic temple view that posits there are intentional parallels between the tabernacle and the temple and the creation of God. The idea being essentially that the creation of God was a cosmic temple. The universe being God's temple proper, the earth being his temple, and Eden being the holy of holies. And there's lots of interesting parallels you can dig into if you want to research that a little bit more on your own. There's also a mega-theme flow of creation, Sabbath, and God's presence that appears in Genesis, Exodus, and Revelation. In Genesis, you have creation, six days of work, then the Sabbath rest to appreciate and enjoy God's creation, and then God's presence being among his people, walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve as they work together in partnership. In Exodus, we have the creation, the construction of the tabernacle, then the repeated focus on the Sabbath, and then God's people coming and dwelling among his people as he inhabits the tabernacle, and then leads them and partners with them, directing them where to go. All across history, there's this view that there will be perhaps 6,000 years of human history to parallel the six days of creation, which will then be followed by a seventh day, a thousand-year Sabbath rest where Jesus will reign in what's called the millennial kingdom on the earth for us to rest and appreciate God's creation, the earth as it was intended to be. And then we will move forward with the Lord into the ages to come in his presence, partnering with him in whatever is to come next. Now, I can't do a full study on any of those things, but I just wanted to put out those breadcrumbs for you if you're not familiar with them so that you can look into those things more in your own time should you choose to do so. The whole Bible ultimately has one author, Jesus. And that's why in the books of Exodus and Revelation, we see the same subject in focus, redemption. Exodus introduces the subject in earnest. Revelation reveals the culmination of redemption. And that's why in about a month, I'm really looking forward to beginning our study in the book of Revelation. We studied it at New Hope six years ago, and I don't know if you've noticed, but a few things have happened since then. And all I can say is that if you participated in that study six years ago and had any doubts about the literal nature of the book of Revelation, the last six years should have put those doubts to rest for you. Since that time, we've also studied Daniel, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and the Olivet Discourse in the Gospels. And as we've said, a lot has happened in the world. It's going to be a timely study. It's going to be fascinating, eye-opening, shocking, encouraging, and faith-building. So if you have any friends, if you have any family or co-workers who are interested in the end of the world, conspiracies, or anything like that, and really, who isn't? hey, this is the time to invite them to church if you're local here. This is the time to invite them to maybe go through that study with you if you're living somewhere else and watching this online. I can't wait to get back into that study. 
Well, one more quick note. If you want to find that list of all the comparisons between Moses and Jesus, I'm going to put that on the website, on the page for this message. I'll make sure there's a specific PDF document. Then you can go and look up all the related scripture references if you have any interest in doing that. Praise God. Praise God that we are redeemed by our greater than Moses, Jesus Christ. Praise God we've been set free We've been redeemed. That is the central message of the book of Exodus. We've been set free to experience the family of God, the presence of God, the blessings of God, and to be part of his special family. Be part of his chosen people. What a privilege. What a joy. What an honor. Thank you for being with us for this study. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift that is your word. Thank you for the way that you use history and pictures and types. And Lord, you use words and stories and metaphors and and all these things to paint a picture for us of your love for us and the incredible saving redemptive work of your son, Jesus, on our behalf. We are so, so grateful, Lord. And we ask that right now, if there's a specific part of this message that you want us to take in and take to heart, Lord, would you just illuminate it once again right now? Bring it to memory so that we can respond to you because we love you, we want to know you more, and we want to walk in your ways that we might pave the way for your presence, blessings, and guidance in every area of our lives. Thank you so much for your goodness, Jesus. We bless you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to share just a few quick things with you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing. So go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel right now to learn more about Jesus. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of Gospel City through financial giving, you can do so by going to mynewhope.ca slash give. And finally, I want to invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates and encouragements throughout the week. And you can find all those links in the top right corner of our website. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.